Hey everyone, and welcome to The Rational Republican, a podcast where we look at complex issues facing us here in Oregon and around the nation. We'll try to address issues from a nonpartisan perspective and view our disagreements through a lens of respect rather than tribalism or divisiveness. I'm James Ball. This is Nick Perlosky. Hey listeners, how we doing? Today's podcast is brought to you by ProLift Garage Doors. ProLift is your one-stop shop for residential and small commercial garage doors from openers, springs, and rollers to full reinstalls. They offer same-day service on all garage door repairs with no extra charge for evenings or weekends. Serving the greater Portland metro area, call today and set up your free estimate at 503-558-6349 or at proliftdoors.com slash Portland. Again, that's 503 558 6349 or slash portland On this episode of the podcast, we welcome Commissioner Todd Nash, a county commissioner out in Wallowa County. Commissioner Nash has uh, announced his intention to run for the Oregon Senate in Senate District 29, which reaches all the way from the northeastern corner of Oregon all the way to Clackamas County which is an enormous landmass that you would be uh, hopefully representing. So, uh, Commissioner, welcome to the show. Why don't you take a couple of minutes and kind of introduce yourself, uh, who you are, why you decided to run for the Senate, and kind of just your background a little bit. Yeah, well, thank you, James. Uh, Appreciate the opportunity to be on the show here. Um, As you mentioned, uh, Commissioner in Wallowa County, I've held this position since 2017, um, and uh, been a great honor to to be a commissioner here in, in this area. Um, I decided to get in the race uh, through through a series of events, I guess. But uh, leading up to it, um, several years ago, Representative Greg Barreto had asked me if I would consider getting in the race when he stepped down. And uh, I I decided at at that time that it wasn't a good fit for me. There was a lot of things in transition, and um, I I couldn't uh, actually afford to do it at the time. And uh, he said, you know, there's going to come a time when you are able to do it, and uh, and I, I want you to consider doing it at that time. And so when Senator Hansel announced that he was going to step down, um, I considered it and talked it over with my wife, family. Um, some of the members in the area that, that are well connected to what is political uh, gamesmanship here and, and within the district, and there was quite a lot of support. And so I threw my hat in the ring early and um, with every intention to try to win. Excellent. Yeah, the uh, the Senate has made the news a little bit lately for uh, a lot of people who are not running again, or, or potentially Measure One Thirteen will prevent them from running again. Um, that's that's been a crazy thing to follow in the news. Uh, not to throw a curveball at you, but have you watched that at all? And um, what are your thoughts on the walkout of this organization that you're attempting to join? Well, yeah, I I, I followed it with uh, with great. Uh, admiration for those guys that were willing to step out on those principled ideas that would take away some parental rights and some of the second amendment rights that we hold near and dear. And, and uh, so, no, I, I supported the walkout, um, the sacrifice that they're going to have to make or potentially have to make uh, with, with never serving um, in another 
um, Senate. Uh, you know, it, it was substantial, and, and uh, I really appreciate them being willing to do that. And I think it was a time that they needed to do that. That was the the last card that they had to draw to, and and they played it well. Yeah, we uh, we recently interviewed a, a, a. I went I went to school in the University of Texas, and I was active in Texas politics for a number of years. And Texas is like Oregon in that it's kind of a one party dominated state. And he was bemoaning the fact that all their Democrats would they would go and they would leave and, they, you know, they oh, we can't get anything done or whatever. And I said, well, you know, when the shoes on the other foot, <laughs> it's, uh, it always seems like a, it's kind of a beneficial thing to have. So I'm I, I'm with you. I'm glad that, you know, that it's not even that like that was the card they chose to play. That was the one card that was available. So it's like you, when you're kind of backed into a corner there, you know, them's the breaks. But um, I, I'd be curious to hear if, if you wouldn't mind just sharing a little bit about your background and, uh, you know, what's what's going on in Wallowa County? What is it that you hope that you'd be able to, to bring as a county commissioner out to the Senate? And, you know, what is it that makes you think, you know, you're the, you're the best person for the job? Yeah, well, I'll give you a little historical background. Um, you know, I never saw myself being in a position like I am right now. Um, but going back quite a few years to 2009, 2010, I took some leadership roles here with the local cattlemen's association, local stock growers association. And it was when wolves first came into the area and we had some of the first wolves were actually in my cattle and were sustaining depredations. And a lot of my neighbors were as well. Um, I found myself in town advocating for better policies with uh, you know, a new predator on the landscape that we really didn't have any rules or laws established on um, that, that had been solidified. And so um, I found myself uh, advocating for um, some laws that that needed to be addressed, uh, one of which was compensation to make sure that the guys were getting paid for their losses. And, um, and that goes back to 2011. But that's a big portion of what got me involved in, in the political um, arena early on. The other thing was I was running on a federal forest permit and I had five endangered species on that federal por forest permit that I was running cattle on. And uh, just to go through them, but the wolves were one time listed and Spalding's catch fly is a plant that is a listed species with U.S. Uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife, and I had uh, three different fish species, bull trout, Chinook salmon, and steelhead. And it got to be where you couldn't graze in a certain area before June 1st because of steelhead emergence. You couldn't graze there after August 10th because of the Chinook salmon. And then there was the bull trout that spawned uh, sometime around the 1st of October. The Spalding's catch fly was at a vulnerable state the 1st of July. And then you had wolves that were either at a den site or a rendezvous site, and you couldn't graze next to them. And uh, it got to be, you know, where can you graze? And, uh, and it felt like there was a lot of pressures to do something. Um, I ended up working on a lot of policies there. Uh, tried to make some corrections, tried to mitigate some circumstances, and found a lot of my fellow ranchers and citizens. And so all of a sudden, I found myself in town more than I wanted to be. I got asked to run for the commissioner position 
when a commissioner that had served here for 18 years decided to step down and take another pin in the private sector. And so it's kind of the same way. Um, I asked my family, I asked um, some of the local folks that I admire and, and uh, appreciate. And so that's what landed me here. Um, and then going back to those uh, early times there in leadership with the stock growers, kind of the same way, got thrust forward a little bit into Oregon Cattlemen's Association, became the Wolf Committee Chair. And then later on, uh, I was in a position where I went through the, the executive branches there, if you will, and, and uh, treasurer, president-elect, and now I'm uh, winding down uh, the last of, of what was a two-year um, stretch for, for the presidency. And so that'll end December 2nd. And uh, um, it's uh, it's been a wonderful thing to be able to serve yeah. uh, one of the top um, one of the top ag commodities in the state of Oregon. So um, real real yeah. privilege to be able to do that. So you're just about to be out of a job is all that it really boils down to. Got to got to keep yeah. going on the on the government dole, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, and so you know we were running a large bunch of cattle uh, back in the early 2000s and and up until uh, 2018, and then kind of made the decision to uh, either get small enough to where just my wife and I could handle it. Or, or to be large enough to to have uh, an employee or two, and and really with the way that uh, things were going with the ranch and different leases that I had, it made a lot more sense for us to reduce down. So we're running about a hundred cows now, and and uh, my wife does a lot of direct marketing with with our beef, and and uh, and we've uh, kind of found a way to keep going here, keep one toe in the industry and, uh, and then another here in, in, in the commissioner job. So I wanted to comment on the wolves uh, issue. Um, this is something that those of us in the Lambert Valley are just completely ignorant about. And I've, I've talked to him. I don't, I'm sure I forget if we do it on the podcast or just in private conversation, but um, that's a big deal for all you out in the Eastern part of the camp, uh, state because you are not allowed to hunt them because they're i believe are they still endangered or not anymore not anymore in fact you know that's something that i'm proud of we worked really hard on um we went around yeah. to nearly every commission meeting for a couple of years and and the odfw commission meeting and uh, and so there's two levels of listing within the state and an animal automatically comes listed on the state list if it is listed as a federal uh, species. Right. So, so anyway, so it was listed federally. It was listed as a state endangered. And uh, on November 9th, 2015, um, the commission voted to delist them as a state. The other thing that we knew that we were going to be vulnerable on was the possibility of having lawsuits against uh, that decision because that wasn't 
a law, right? It's just um, a decision that the commission makes and and those rules are, are a lot more vulnerable to, um, to judicial review. And so we wanted to back that up. And so uh, House Bill 4040 was introduced by Greg Barreto and um, that bill ratified the delisting decision by the commission and that was a bill that we worked really hard on here we brought uh, we brought a number of legislators out uh, that were from the other side of the state um, gave them a tour they talked to the ranchers that were dealing with the issues um, we we got uh, pretty good traction there took it when we started into session it still looked like a major uphill battle but we got it through the first natural resource committee in the house and then it went over uh, to the full house and, and it barely passed there and then you know the senate natural resource committee barely passed out of there <laughs> and then when we got to the full senate uh, we were told look you guys there's just not enough votes you're you're uh, one or two votes short and uh, one of the most inspiring things in, in this whole uh, work up to this was watching a, a legislator, a senator from Eugene, Chris Edwards, uh, speak so eloquently on this subject and the need to do this. And uh, he swayed the votes there. Um, we, we got it through the full Senate, then it sat on the governor's desk for a while. Um, I talked to the natural resource uh, director there for the governor and, and uh, Brett Brownscombe at the time. And I said, Brett, is, is she going to sign it? Is she going to veto it? And we didn't know. But uh, I'm pretty proud of the fact that that uh, I have both Tina Kotek uh, as a speaker and, and, uh, and Governor Brown's signature on House Bill 4040. It's the only bill that I have framed. Senator Hansel handed me that. It was a congratulations, and and he played a big part in it. There was there was a lot of people, but that was uh, the impossible bill that we didn't think that we would get through there. But wolves are a big deal out here, and uh, yeah. if if they're not in your livestock or not in your back door or not picking pets off your front porch, it doesn't seem like a big deal. And and we so, run into that a number of times, and and having those legislators out here on the ground where they saw where the depredations were taking place. They talked to the people. They saw the emotional toll that it takes on people. That's what made the difference in the end. So that's actually something I'd be curious to hear a little bit more about. I had, um, so James and I are both based here in Portland and obviously the capital is in Salem, just 30 miles down the road. And it feels like a lot of the, the power is centered around folks who get elected from Portland, from the Willamette Valley, from, you know, a, a drives, a quick drives distance away from the capital to begin with. And I, for for a lot of folks, uh, both population wise and those individuals in power, uh, Eastern Oregon is just is is a ways away. And it's a whole completely other other state that it's, you know, can be tough to, to kind of wrap your head around. You just mentioned, you know, you, you know, actually got some legislators out there. What's kind of the best way that you've either seen or you know something that you're looking forward to doing to as a way to kind of build bridges from you know representatives from Corvallis or Detroit or the Dalles or somewhere who is you know just just a little less familiar with 
what it's like to be in, you know, in, in your part of the state? Well, I think definitely getting them out here on the landscape is huge. And, and we've proven that time and again. Um, but, you know, building relationships with those individuals and, and listening to them on the issues that matter most to them, you know, I, I haven't really weighed in on issues that are pertinent to the other side of the state, uh, whether it is a bridge or one thing or another that's going on in Portland um, has been uh, not my focus and interest, but it's amazing the things that take place out here on this side of the state and the interest that it perks from within uh, Portland, for example. And, and, and I'll give you an example. I just read an article that I was quoted in in, in Capitol Press, and, and it talked about the wolf compensation bill that we tried to get through this year. It was House Bill 2633. And with that bill, there's a quote there from uh, Representative Gomberg that thought that, that maybe we were asking a little bit too much and, and uh, his formula was a little bit better. And, uh, and I'm thinking, you know, how, how does this guy from, I, I believe from the Gresham area, how, how does he know what is best for us? And uh, it's perplexing to me that, that there is a boldness to weigh in. And, and uh, I, don't, I don't mean to be critical of him. I'm really curious how he comes up with that concept, though, when it's nothing that impacts him whatsoever. So I, I'm looking forward to having those conversations. I've had lots of conversations with, obviously, with legislators from the other side of the state. And I think that, uh, yeah, if, if I can listen to their side of things, maybe they can listen to mine. But you bring up an interesting point, too, and and how far we are out here. Uh, I travel to the other side of the state all the time. I, I go over there at the drop of a hat. When they come over here, we always hear, wow, it's a long ways out here. But I never hear that, wow, you drove a long ways to get here. So it, it's funny how that works. They, I heard a, uh, a quote recently that it's something along the lines of, in order to realize how good is it relating to athletics how in order to realize how talented you top level athletes are you have to be really bad at that at whatever sport it is you know if you're a runner and you are struggling to to get an eight minute mile you don't realize how much harder it is to get a you know four and a half minute mile and i think that that kind of relates to a lot of different things um if you live in if you have zero uh perspective on something you think you know more than you knew. You need to know a little bit to realize how much you don't know. And I think that that maybe is the problem. Like like you mentioned, when people drive out to your part of the state, they're, they're wow, it's really far. Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> and I think you are probably a little bit familiar with the Willamette Valley because you have to be because this is just where the population is. And you know enough to know that you're not an expert on the urban issues that take place in Portland and Salem and Eugene, but the representatives and, and senators from this area, they have no perspective. They have no idea what goes on east of the Cascades. And so they think they have an idea. And I, I think he, that you're absolutely right. I think that we would all benefit from uh, Portland representatives and senators taking a few trips out to the, the eastern parts of the state and just so they can learn just how much they don't know about what goes on out there. So 
I think that that's a a really uh, thoughtful way to to approach it. Um, but yeah, they have no idea what's what's going on. I have no idea what's going on. I mean, that's that's kind of my point on the on the wolf thing. Um, a huge issue for you all out there. And if it weren't for this podcast, I probably would have also just been like wolves. What are you talking about? Who cares about wolves? I mean, <laughs> there aren't they in Yellowstone? Didn't we reintroduce them to Yellowstone recently? Like that's like the that. extent of my knowledge. That's a good argument. We'll do a rational Republican road trip. I feel like that's the that's going to be like a bad sitcom on the Fox Network or something like that. But we'll see if we can we'll see if we can make that one happen. But uh, Commissioner, I'd be curious to know. Uh, obviously, you mentioned having a, a, a great close relationship with Senator Hansel. Is there anything that he's working on right now that you're looking to either continue or build on? Is there anything uh, of your own issues that you're? Uh, you know, I know we talked about the the wolves a second ago. Is there anything that? Um, that's going on right now in terms of legislation that like you'd really like to push on your own or is it more in your case are you just interested in saying hey look we've got constituents out here that need tending to uh you know folks kind of ignore this part of the state we just need somebody who's going to stand up for senate district 29 and make sure that you know our voices are still heard and legislation is going through in Salem. Yeah, I, there are issues, and uh, I'm going to be vague at first, and I'll drill down into some specifics. But, you know, as you guys mentioned, those things that are pertinent to those areas, uh, having that local control, uh, giving the power back to the counties, back to the cities, um, it is paramount to, to establishing um some some of the ways that that we legislate and uh and whether it be land use issues um whether it, it be uh building codes uh whether it be uh you know the, the list goes on and on but there are issues that can be better uh advised at that very localist level and so um and, and it goes back to some of the things that we've been voted on as as a state, you know, going back to uh, 1994, uh, there was Measure 94. And and that banned uh, hunting with, with dogs for cougars. Um, one of the things that Senator Hansel has put forward year after year is to allow counties to decide whether they wanted to do that within their own county. Now, I think that that's a valid thing to do, um, and it really speaks to the culture and the need for those individual counties to be able to make that decision. Uh, and it's been, it has never got a hearing, as far as I know. Um, but it seems like a silly thing, but it's very relevant. And if Multnomah County doesn't want to participate, if uh, Washington County doesn't want to participate, uh, that's perfectly fine. But I wouldn't weigh in on them, you know, if, if they have uh, a situation with their homeless or I saw where they were going to give out tinfoil uh, to some of the men's users there the other yeah. day, you know, I don't know. Maybe that's valid. Maybe that's something that works for them. I think it's well, silly. And, it's and not. Really, <laughs> As someone who lives here, it's not. <laughs> you know, I, I don't want to stand in judgment it seems like a silly thing to me but it it, it may be relevant now I'll give you an example too um, one of my fellow commissioners from union county just had commissioner jayapal 
out to, um, to have a kind of an exchange. So between Multnomah County and Union County and and uh, and I understand they talked about that and she supported that idea. She didn't like the way it was rolled out and messaged. And uh, that, that was- so If you could uh, explain um, the benefit or the value of allowing dogs to, to hunt cougar. Well, uh, here we are uh, in Oregon. The, the management objectives that are set by Oregon Fish and Wildlife, they set these as optimum levels. And the optimum level in Oregon for cougars is 3,000 cougars. They feel that that's a balance between um, what mule deer and elk and sure. livestock. And, you know, they, they, they set that as a balance years ago. So I th we're over 6,000 cougars now with really no way to manage them. Um, my son actually killed one this year inadvertently. He just happened to have a weapon at the right time, had a tag, saw a big tom, and, and, uh, and so he, he was able to kill one. But at the same time, our management objective levels on mule deer are plummeting. Mm -hmm. And so you take the fact that cougars are killing a deer-sized animal about once a week, and that's well documented. And you take that 6,000 number times the 365 days out of the year or 52 weeks a year, and you're over 300,000 deer. And so we have this plummeting mule deer population, blacktail population, this overabundance of cougars, and there isn't, there isn't a mechanism in which ODFNW can uh, regulate them at the, that time because because it was voted in and and, and that measure. So basically, um, it it's very difficult to hunt them without dogs. Is is it, kind it, of it's a, incredibly difficult okay. to hunt them without dogs. I know nothing about hunting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I really don't either. I was um, on the landscape where there were lots of cougars a large part of my life, either logging or ranching, and uh, and I've seen 10. Now, I know guys that were older than me that never saw one in their entire life hmm. and, and spent as much time outside as I did. And so they are incredibly difficult to hunt. How much does uh, ODF and W rely on ranchers and hunters and sportsmen to kind of regulate these these uh these population levels is that with tags and with uh is, do they use that a lot is that a big lever that they use yeah that, that's about the well they they do have some target areas that they can draw to and they've actually done that down in the in the uh roseburg area where where they've uh, at a target area they've went in there with houndsmen hunted some cougars, tried to get the population under control. There were so many cats that they ended up taking quite a few, but it, they said it was just like a vacuum of the cats filling back in those voids where they'd mm -hmm. taken some out. Um, the population has just gotten to a critical point here and, uh, and, and we're just way out of balance. Um, so, I think if you relied on hunters alone right now, 
you end up wanting to be at 3000 and you're at 6000 and growing. Hmm. So I definitely, I mean, I, abundance of cougars i'll take you to some wine bars up in the pearl district there's plenty of cougars that we can go out and find i am certain but um that's i'm i'm almost sure that that's not the ones that you're talking about there but i uh, you mentioned there a declining population of mule deer is is that specifically is that a recreation is that a sportsman is that hunting or or is that a part of the economy that for you know for us, again, and and I apologize for my own ignorance and the ignorance of basically everybody in the Willamette Valley, but for us over here, the the industries are kind of few and far between. It's like there's Nike and Adidas, and you just you go in and you you know do marketing or type things into Excel. There's wineries, you see the grapes as they grow out of the ground and everything like that. There's lumber, you see the trees. You get mad that they have regulations about the spotted owl, and now you can't cut certain trees. Whatever um, is is a declining wildlife population like that. Is that uh, having an effect on the economy, or is it just hey, you know, we're we're out here, we're sportsmen, we like to hunt, and we want to, you know, we want to make sure that we have, you know, more than just like four things in the entire, you know, twelve eastern counties of Oregon that we can go hunt for. No, it's a, it's a very iconic species. And we used to have thousands of hunters that came in this area and all over Eastern Oregon just for the sole purpose of mule deer hunting. And uh, to, to get a trophy mule deer is a really big deal. It's always been difficult, but uh, um, but there was an abundance of, of, of deer. And uh, they, they were just everywhere. Uh, my stepdad used to have a ranch there on the Snake River. He guided out of there. Um, they got about 60 mule deer bucks a year out of there, and they were all decent-sized bucks, four points or bigger. And uh, and now, I, I don't know, in the whole Snake River unit, if you could find 64-point bucks. I really doubt it. Um, they, they were just everywhere. And, uh, and to lose a, an iconic species like that and, and get to where we are now, where they're at a critical point to where we don't know if they're going to be, you know, gone in, in several years or not. Um, it is, is a little terrifying. What I think is interesting about all these uh, quote unquote environmental laws, laws passed by environmentalists or sponsored by environmentalists, a lot of times end up having the opposite effect on the environment. And I, I just find the, the irony of that, um, super interesting because it's always activists from the Willamette Valley trying to impose things on places that they've never been to in the name of the environment. Um, just super frustrating and probably a lot more frustrating for you having to live with it. I just, you know, kind of existentially am annoyed by people legislating things they don't know what they're talking about. But um, I, I've gotten into rants and previous podcasts about uh the environment and um, like energy production, how the, the the policies of the left are are causing more carbon to be released into the atmosphere rather than less because of the the stupid way that they that they do it. Um, I don't really have a point to that. I was just frustrated and figured I'd, <laughs> I'd I would vent. Um, are there any other like things that kind of prime examples you can think of of these environmental um, laws, bills, policies that end up having the exact opposite effect than what they were intended to? Well, I don't know if it's the exact opposite, but 
you know, the list of unintended consequences that end up being worse than what they were trying to do. Sure. You know, the listing of the Chinook salmon had a devastating impact here. And it came about the same time that Spotted Owl was listed. Hmm. So it kind of went out of the radar a little bit. But, you know, we went from a fairly large volume of timber coming off our national forest here to almost nothing. And so our first mill in Wallowa County of the big three went down in 1994. And then, you know, by the early 2000s, all three of them were shut down. And even in the 1990 forest plan that we're working off of right now, um, there was a call for 150,000 board feet to be taken up to Wallow Whitman National Forest. They set a target goal this year of 22 million feet. And so we're so far from having a sustainable amount of timber coming off our national forest. Um, each of those three mills we're running about 30 million board feet. And so mm-hmm. between the private and the federal, um, there was enough there to sustain those mills in a long term. And uh, it's really unfortunate what took place. They moved us further and further away from the stream, uh, both with grazing and with logging and roading and everything else. And now they're saying, well, you know, what it really was this whole time was the lower Snake River dams. And so they're trying to uh, justify a case for taking out the lower Snake River dams. And the amount of energy that it's going to take to replace those is just staggering. And the windmills and the solar and, you know, it doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine. And that bat, that water that's backed up behind those dams is a constant battery there. Yep. So one of the things that I've proposed is, look, if you want to take out the lower Snake River dams and you're saying it's the lower Snake River dams, then give us back the ability to do those other things that, that we've been precluded from doing all this time. If that's really what it was and, uh, you know, it, you don't get too far, but, uh, very damaging policies. Um, when National Marine Fisheries writes a biological opinion, everybody jumps. And uh, and that when that biological opinion was written uh, back there in the early 90s, um, it uh, it was a death blow to to much of the economy throughout Eastern Oregon, um, it, much like the spotted owl. Mm-hmm. So I'd be curious, kind of on the same environmental natural resource attack that the, that James was going on there. Um, one of the big stories from I, you know, the last six months or so here uh, is the is Facebook data centers in Prineville, which I understand is is not in your is outside of Senate District Twenty Nine, so that's not your area. Um, but but it does it feels like this story comes up every couple months that there is a some big company is is looking to take advantage of of you know, wind, uh, land mass uh, available, you know, energy in less populated parts of states like Oregon. And the, a lot of folks around here, you know, you know, hippie dippy lefties or whatever, get all up in arms because it's, you know, there's some big corporation and, the, you know, there's going to be all these jobs and it's bad for the environment or whatever. And it strikes me as that the, the individuals in those communities now get a, a massive shot in the arm. If you're going to have, you know, another 
500 or a thousand jobs or something like that of, you know, good paying folks that are coming up here that comes with it. X number of hotels and Y number of restaurants and Z number of, you know, recreational activities and different things like that. Um, have you seen any kind of examples like that in, in your district that Senator Hansel's worked on or, you know, any of the other legislators that you've developed close relationship with uh, of ways to kind of get, you know, engage corporate America? And if we see the, the, the loss of, both recreation and uh, the the economics of something like hunting mule deer, uh, maybe seen something to to come in and replace it in in a way of further developing and advancing the economy, and just not having all the jobs here in the state of Oregon go to Portland chiefly, or you know, kind of Eugene, kind of Corvallis, but have the entire kind of state open for business. Yeah, I have seen that, and Senator Hansel has worked on that specifically in uh, Umatilla and, and Morrow counties in, in particular. Um, but it, it's interesting within the landscape that is District 29, you have a myriad of different varying opinions. And so you have seven whole counties. You have counties like Wheeler County where really the people just want to be left alone mm-hmm. and maybe not overdeveloped. You have the same here in Wallowa County where you know, maybe we don't want um, uh, a, a great expanse of, of 500 new jobs because we don't know where we would house them at this point. And so um, there's, a, there's a wide variety of, of dynamics out there. Um, and, you know, what I see in uh, Umatilla, Morrow County, um, Wasco County, they're open for business. They, they want to expand. They want more people. They want more jobs. They want more economic development. But you have people that live in Sherman County that don't necessarily want to see that large expanse. They don't want to become metro. They live where they live, and they have chosen that, that lifestyle there for what it is. And uh, and so it goes back to the local control that you were talking about earlier. Is right, yeah, you don't have Salem dictating what people should yeah. be doing with their land use. You have the individual counties, cities, municipalities that determine that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and so trying to be sensitive to what the the wants and needs and desires are, and I think as senator, that's where I could play a role in in trying to advocate for those things that those communities want and desire. Cool. I will, um, just the thought occurred to me, um, sort of related to the land use and all that. So we, we live obviously in Portland where we have this uh, imaginary line, the urban growth boundary around, around the, the city center. And um, just kind of a, a counterpoint, I guess, to the, to the local control. Uh, everybody in Portland likes it, mostly. You know, very, very popular because... If you own property within the urban growth boundary, your property value is guaranteed to rise because there's this magic line that you can't cross. You, you limit supply, demand goes up, prices go up. And so if you own land inside the urban growth boundary, you're, you're very happy for things to stay the way they are. And if you own a farm outside the urban growth boundary, you're also happy with it because if you were to be taxed, the full value of your land being in close proximity to a major town, uh, you would not be able to farm. And so locally, everybody really likes this, but the result is everybody who rents can't afford to buy a house. You can't afford to move here. Like the, and you want to, the, the left likes to uh, conflate 
um, homelessness with affordable housing, which I don't necessarily agree with, but you do have two specific problems, homelessness and affordability. And uh, like, it's expensive here because of the way we do land use, but it's also a very popular system. So it's just, um, just kind of a counterpoint to local, local, to local control. And I'm absolutely a local control person. I just, um, I guess that's probably why I identify as a moderate is there's always, there's always a caveat, you know, I believe in local control most of the time. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, just, just a thought from, from this side of the mountains. Yeah. And I think you're exactly right. You know, I say the land use laws in Oregon are laws that we love to hate and, Mm -hmm. and we love the open spaces having to have 160 or 240 acres in order to build a dwelling on these farms, uh, farm use exclusive or, or timber grazing, you know, it has lent to these large open spaces and, you know, little over four and a half million people in the entire state of Oregon. Um, that's, that's kind of a wonderful thing to have all this open space. You know, you, yeah. you, you go to a, uh, Houston and there's eight million people and everything's concrete and and asphalt and and uh, uh, gosh uh, L.A. County is 12 million people. Uh, we have a a wonderful thing here in Oregon with with some of what we have. You know the move the Oregon I uh, border to, to Greater Idaho is been one of those things that's kind of controversial and and divisive. But one of the things that I've attested to was, you know, you you drive from Ontario into Boise and remember what that looked like 20 years ago. And there's a lot of farm ground that has been occupied now with businesses, with with dwellings. And and, uh, is that something that you want to do here? And, uh, And they do have... Uh, a local control on that land use and, and have a lot of leverage there at the county level. And so some of those safeguards in at the state level, they have some value. I don't, you know, it, it's one of those um, things that you're, you're kind of wavering in between there on whether it's good or bad. But uh, I love the open spaces that we yeah. have in Oregon. So of the, your district uh, encompasses several different counties out there. Are, are those, um, are all of them counties that have voted for the Greater Idaho proposal? I know you have like little, little slivers of Marion and Clackamas, which are obviously, you know, the other side of the mountains and, and probably don't count, but probably a good portion of your, of your district voted uh, in favor of that, right? Yeah, very good portion of them and and so we just uh, had the vote here in Wallowa County in May it was voted down here the first time it went down by 40 votes it was very close this time I think it was seven or eight votes in favor of and so you know it's uh it's one of those uh things that 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 is extremely polarizing within the community what, one of the things that uh, we see here, though, is the frustration of not having a voice, not being listened to in Salem, and and having rules uh, piled on top of us that we didn't want to begin with. And so that is a lot of the frustration. And if people just have their druthers 
whether to stay in Oregon and not become Greater Idaho, have a larger voice, have some respect in Salem. I think that most people would just say, let's just stay here. We're, mm -hmm. we're, we're good with this. We don't need to move a state line. But the frustration level is real. And uh, yeah. What I would hope, uh, and I think this is kind of being lost on the Democrats, what I would hope is that somebody left of center looks at this and says exactly what you're saying. They see the frustration because I, I think it's logistically and, and it's just probably not going to happen. But I think that um, the benefit from it could be that hopefully people that control the state, especially the Democratic Party, uh, looks at that and says, oh, wow, these people are really mad. They're really frustrated. They really feel like they don't aren't, they aren't listened to. Um, and unfortunately, I think that that's, that's being lost on them. I don't think that many of them that I've talked to see it that way. They see it as, oh, these, you know, spoiled Eastern Oregonians, they get all this money from Portland's, uh, you know, they're, they're heavily subsidized uh, and they just are, you can't, you can't please them. And they, so they completely miss the, the whole point of this thing, which is, which is frustrating. Um, I've also seen a, a, uh, there's a subreddit called Greater Oregon that <laughs> moves the border east and uh, encompasses Boise into Oregon. So I mean, there's that. <laughs> It'll be a whole other topic for a podcast. <laughs> hey, Commissioner, I'm all about making sure that your voice gets heard. Obviously, I think the best way to do that is to come on our show. So we'll just hope that a, a whole bunch of your new legislative friends, when you get in there in a couple, you know, the year and a half down the road, that uh, that they'll tune in. Um, and, and just as we wind down, we we did tip you off. We're going to ask this, but we always end the show by asking uh, all of our guests who their favorite Republican is. So when uh, when we put that question to you, who's uh, who's the the person that comes to mind? Well, Reagan came to mind first, definitely, and and probably uh, a big portion of your viewers uh, draw to, to Reagan, and uh, he was so articulate, so down to earth, and uh, and had those relevant points. He could roll with the punches, and I always admired that about him. Um, I, you know, when he first stepped into office and, and I was 18 years old, I was really worried that he was going to get us into a war that we couldn't get out of. But the strength and power and resolve that he showed um, really won the day. But uh, I, I want to pick one other one if I can. And um, and that's Greg Barreto. Um, hmm. Greg served for, for six years. And he was here in this district. Um, he got to be a friend, and and uh, and he and his family, Chris, and and the rest of his kid, most of them, uh, they were like family to me. By the time he was done with his six-year term, I ended up spending um, the nights at, at his house a lot of times when I was driving back and forth to Salem. I never saw in Greg. I never saw any divisiveness. I didn't see the political wrangling. He was straight up. What he was was what he was. And uh, um, I, I really appreciated that about him. And in the end, he had the respect of so many of his Democrat colleagues as well that he ended up getting uh, some of the things through that, uh, that, that maybe somebody that didn't garner as much respect as he did would, would have. But uh, yeah, I, I really, I love Greg and his family. I still do. Um, he, he set the bar really high. 
Yeah, very, very good picks. Well, with that, uh, we basically end our show. Commissioner, thank you again so much for coming on the podcast and uh, taking the time to talk to us and give us some of your, your story and some of your perspectives that we a lot of times don't hear much of uh, living here in the Valley. So again, thank you. And listeners, we will talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to the Rational Republican Podcast. Your hosts are James Ball and Nick Perlosky. The show today is brought to you by ProLift Garage Doors of Portland, serving the greater Portland metro area for all your garage door installation and repair needs. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can email us at james at jamesaball.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can find our episodes at jamesaball.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts.